So there's a saying that uh, hearing the words namo tassa even once in one's life can be like the uh, harbinger, harbinger of uh, great good fortune. And uh, today we have the chance to hear namo tassa many times and for these words to go deeply into our heart. Now you're going to hear it one more time in what is uh, like my own uh, heritage tune, I would say, like risen from deep in my heart, connected to something long past uh, that's still very much uh, alive, beautiful, and deep in Dhamma. Namo tassa pakawato arahato samma Sampotasam Namotasam Paghawato Arahatom Samman Sampotasam Namotasam Paghawato Arahatom Samma Sampotasam Uthang Namang Sanghang Namasami My homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one, my fundamental and root teacher and guide in this life. Uh, guide through the joys, guide through the sorrows, guide through the oceans of samsara, guide in the great stream uh, and path of the Dhamma uh, to liberation, to awakening, to the ending of all suffering that we don't need to bear, to learning how to be free and peaceful ones in the midst of all of the things that are just nature, just the truth of nature. I also want to share my homage with, uh, uh, especially with my own teachers, several of whom have passed away, especially my own preceptor, uh, my venerable bhikkhu preceptor, the uh, venerable uh, Havampola Ratanasara Nayaka Mahatero. Uh, he already passed away, and uh, he was really Oh, I'd say exceptional in terms of his uh, study of the Buddha's teaching, the Dhamma and the Vinaya, and his clarity about what the Buddha taught. Uh, and then also exceptional in his uh, own practice and integrity in terms of uh, wishing to be true uh, to the Buddha's teaching in the midst of all worldly conventions, social cultures, and things like this. And uh, thanks to that integrity, then, with that real uh, clarity and uh, deep sense of, I'd say, primary sense of loyalty and affinity to the Buddha and to his, uh, the early Buddhist teachings in Dhamma and Vinaya, because of that, then, he was the first one to go ahead uh, in North America in uh, offering even the seminary uh, Pabaja, 
as we have three, wonderfully, three seminaries here today sitting on our far right side with Anagarika Chidananda smiling uh, at, the, at the far hand there. This is a very wonderful thing and before 1988, uh, not possible to see in North America at all in Theravada Buddhism. Even novice ordination was not allowed for women at that time. And um, there was uh, one uh, Thai woman, uh, very faithful uh, and very good heart. She had been a lawyer, an advocate, so used to uh, working to make things clear for justice and uh, for standing up for uh, people who might be getting pushed around in one way or another. She had this background and uh, anyhow, um, Lung Thia, who was a monk who was uh, leading up at Wat Thai in Los Angeles, one of the first Thai temples in Los Angeles, uh, advised her to go ahead uh, with uh, uh, becoming a female novice and entering into wearing these uh, patchwork uh, saffron robes, uh, the what, sometimes called the banner of the Atahans, sometimes called field of merit because they're, they're designed to be like a paddy field with the part where the water runs through and then, then holds, holds the water uh, for the crops to be able to grow up well. So these are the names of uh, this, this robe. So uh, my own venerable preceptor then uh, was requested to offer her the precepts and the going forth and did so. Uh, which was a very big thing at that time, maybe more than 200 monastics from all around the area and Theravada Buddhism from different traditions came together. And uh, I had a chance to meet her recently, so I was really, really impressed to uh, meet her. She's still alive, my preceptor already passed away. Later that same year, uh, Ayakema, Ayadamapali, Ayameta, Guruma, um, a number of women uh, from Sri Lanka, Nepal, the United States, Germany, including Ayakema, who may have been one of the most famous uh, among them. Uh, then also they went ahead with having the first bhikkhuni uh, ordination uh, in uh, North America in 1988. This has often been forgotten. But the reason that I mention it is because we're coming up on a very important anniversary, uh, a centenary. Centennial? Uh, I've heard it pronounced a bunch of different ways, even centenary. <laughs> I don't know if it really exists, but if a word is used, then it exists, right? Um, so we're just on the cusp right now. Uh, we just passed the new moon, and as the moon starts to get full, when we come up to this full moon, we'll come up to the beginning of the 2,600-year anniversary. 2,600-year anniversary of the foundation of the Bhikkhuni Sangha. Uh, in Buddhism. That's our women's monastic community in Buddhism, the fully ordained women's monastic community. So 2,600 year anniversary. There's a slight variance in counting systems, so we'll say between the September 2016 full moon, which is coming up, so now every night if you look at the moon waxing full, we'll be coming near to it. So this coming full moon, we're just on the cusp of it, 
through to the September 2017 full moon, accounting for both counting systems, then this year, this coming year, between the uh, September 2016 and September 2017 full moon, according to Theravada Buddhist counting, will be the 2,600-year uh, anniversary of two very great things that come together. The initial founding of the Bhikkhuni Sangha, the tradition of full ordination for women in Buddhism, uh, started according to, the, uh, according to all the Buddhist traditions by the Buddha himself. And then also that comes together with the founding of the Buddha's fourfold Sangha because those two things come together. Now there are some people who got the idea from somewhere around, even I've seen it on blogs, on the internet, this kind of thing, that the Buddha never wanted to have a women's monastic community, never wished to have a women's monastic community, and that it's better off that it's dead. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> oh my goodness! I've heard some people say this kind of thing and read this kind of thing, even around on the internet, yeah? Now, if someone were to read the Sutta, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, this is the Sutta on sometimes the su called the Sutta of the Great Passing, or the Sutta of the Buddha's Final Days, or the Buddha, the Sutta of the Great Final Passing, uh, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. So this is the Sutta uh, in the long discourses of the Buddha, uh, where we have the story of the Buddha's own passing away and entering into final Nirvana. So there's a time, there's a place in this sutta where uh, the, uh, the Buddha uh, gives a sign that he's going to be uh, passing away. He broaches the subject. Having broached the subject within the sutta, then according to the story, Mara, death himself appears and asks him uh, whether it wouldn't be good for him to just... <laughs> Anyway, they have, a, they have a conversation recollecting back into the past. Recollecting back into the past, they talk about something that had happened then years before, and they recollect back to the time of the Buddha's own great awakening. Recollecting back to that time, death himself is supposed to have appeared to the Buddha then after his great awakening, but before he began teaching, and to have said, why don't you just pass away now? You can just enjoy your bliss. No need to teach. Why trouble yourself? <laughs> People are deeply sunk in their desires and aversions and these kinds of things. Who would be able to understand anyway? Right? Uh, this kind of thing we find in the text. The Buddha is supposed to have then used his eye uh, that was able to then look into and look through the world and to be able to see the capability of various living beings. In doing so, indeed, he saw many people who are deeply sunk in it. Uh, and also he saw beings that he termed as having little dust in their eyes. So not completely blinded by the dust of the world, but just a little dust in their eyes. And he felt, he had a sense, that if he were to share what he had seen, what he had known for himself, what he had awakened to, what he had penetrated to in the Dhamma, what he had understood, that there are those who would be able to understand and would be able to benefit. And here, for many of us, we can say that we're living proof of that being true. 
I know for myself, I very much appreciate uh, the real benefit that I found in seeing, hearing, um, meeting uh, the teaching, the teachers, practicing this path, and then the effects that have come uh, from that. Uh, so I'm very glad that the conversation went the way that it did. But in this old conversation then, the Buddha is supposed to have made a statement of determination. And that statement of determination was that he was not going to pass away and enter into final bliss final parinibbana, final nirvana, until he had established his fourfold community. Having seen that there were those who were capable, and this fourfold community included uh, explicitly the male monastics bhikkhus, female bhikkhus, female monastics bhikkhunis, uh, also upasakas and upasikas, who were able to see and to experience and to understand this Dhamma that he taught and able to pass that on, able to share that with others. So these are the Buddha's heirs, and this is called the Fourfold Sangha, or Fourfold Assembly of the Buddha. So this is the 2,600-year anniversary then of two things, because with the founding of the Bhikkhuni Sangha, then the Buddha's intention, this determination that was stated right from the time of his awakening, before he even began teaching, to not pass away until all four of these, there were in all four categories such practitioners and such teachers established who were able to, again, who had experienced and were able to clearly share this Dhamma, this path of practice with others, and also able to refute false views. So if anyone ever says this kind of thing to you that I said before, then as one of the Buddha's heirs, <laughs> one of the jobs of the Buddha's heirs, uh, whatever category or whatever fold of the Sangha that you fall into is to refute false views. So if people say things that are bogus and <laughs> that don't align well with the teaching, to be able to understand and to know that clearly. Yeah, so this is uh, something that's part of the, the Buddhist heritage. And I want to thank all of those uh, of the four assemblies or fourfold Sangha who have then passed this teaching down to this time because 2,600 years is a long, it's a long stretch of time. And there have been the times with, especially with politics, with wars, with things like that, where the Bhikkhu Sangha has been eradicated in various places, where the Bhikkhuni Sangha has been eradicated in various places. It's happened again and again. And so the Bhikkhuni Sangha in Theravada disappeared for a period of time. We're not exactly sure how long. Sometimes people say a thousand years, and now it's back, and emphasize the thousand years, and that sounds very dramatic. For me, being a historian, then I see quite a lot of records from Southeast Asia, from South Asia, that may make me think, not quite a thousand years, maybe at least around 200, because there are records of the Bhikkhunis in Burma, uh, you know, not so long.
not so long ago, and also northern area of Thailand and the southern part of China, the sometimes China, sometimes Thailand, sometimes Burma, that, that area there, there are the records there, yeah? So a thousand years sounds very dramatic, almost as dramatic as 2,600 years, but it may not have actually been so long. Still, there was a period of time for a while in our world there where women being in leadership positions, uh, being in teaching positions, having eminent roles in religion was generally not so popular. And that's something that's really, I'd say, in the last hundred years at least. And centenary, we look back at the last hundred years, see what happened since 2500 to 2600, and there's been a big shift in the other direction. So in our world these days, there's a real call for the women who are, I'd say, I, you know, I hear it all the time. I hear people say, we really, we want more bhikkhuni teachers who are really skilled and experienced in this dhamma, who have really practiced deeply and well, who are able to share this with us. This is so precious. This is so valuable. Our world needs this. I need this. My friends need this. And I hear people say this kind of thing so often in the number of invitations that we receive to teach, there's no way that this small little group here is able to answer all of those invitations, yeah? So on the one hand, there are all these invitations and the wish for really experienced bhikkhuni teachers. And on the other hand, we have all these aspirants who come in. I was asking Aya Ananda Bodhi yesterday, or asking uh, Bhikkhuni Jayati yesterday, uh, how many uh, women on average were interested in monastic life, how many on average might be in, they might be encountering here. And I know for us with Tama Darini, Tamadarini in Sonoma County, uh, where I came from a couple of days ago with our new monastery there and our hermitage. Tamadarini has existed now for nearly 12 years. In the first year of existence, I think about 20 women contacted us who were interested in uh, entering into monastic life. And we didn't have space at that time or support even for one more, and then there's room for one more, and then, you know, so one more and one more uh, like this, you know, maybe one every couple of years able to receive. In this last year, previous year, uh, generally now year by year, around a hundred uh, women expressing their interest in entering into monastic life through Tamadarini and then even more through uh, Aloka Vihara and Saran. I mean, uh, maybe not more than a hundred, I mean, there are the ones additional to that hundred. They're not all, not all contacted us and contacted them, is what I mean. There are those who have contacted here who never contacted us. So there are additional to that. My guess is probably at our monastery now, uh, Sister Ahinsa lived previously in Canada at Sati Saraniya Hermitage, uh, Perth, Ontario, so the eastern side of Canada. And how many have applied there as well? And so the number of women, on the other hand, who express their interest and their aspiration for entering into this way of life 
in Interfaith Women for Peace, I talked with some of the Christian sisters who have the very enormous place, which is gradually becoming empty. In fact, their hospice is very large, but the number of younger sisters who are entering is actually very small. So they have one novice enter in the last five years, and she is not so young. Uh, so not so many when they heard when they heard how many were applying uh, with the Buddhists, they were really surprised because we have comparatively no facilities and <laughs> this kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, it's not such, a, not such an enormous, beautiful complex and everything, but very beautiful place. There's really a rise in interest. So I deeply wish uh, that we may all serve as uh, in, in the space of bridges in a way, uh, to be the bridges between those who are aspiring and those who wish for, I'll say, the final product, that is the, the great teachers. And, um, you know, Studying the ancient Buddhist texts, uh, we find the Buddha himself praising his women monastic disciples very highly, uh, using words that, you know, when I think when I think about the words that are used and I imagine them, well, we'll see what you think of. Sometimes calling them uh, uh, she elephants. <laughs> now, the elephant was very highly revered and appreciated in South and Southeast Asia. So if someone called a, a woman an elephant these days, then we might not think it's a compliment. But being called a she-elephant in ancient South and Southeast Asian Buddhist traditions, very high compliment indeed. The elephants were powerful and revered beings. Signs of auspiciousness belonged to the royalty. They were the great, you know, really great great movers of the things that are very hard to move. Yeah, they were the ones who were able to do that. So this is deeply significant. Also called she-lions, lionesses, and uh, praise them for their way of teaching in <laughs> roaring the lion's roar. So people talked about the Buddha as being like lion-like in a way, and the way that he taught that sometimes for, for refute, refuting the kind of views that people get stuck on that really like send people to hell or keep them stuck in very difficult circumstances for being able to penetrate and refute those views. Then the Buddha was said to roar his lion's roar and, you know, to just really just clear all of those views away and people experience that and then the clearing in their minds when listening to the Dhamma. So she lions, lionesses, praise them for roaring their lion's roar. Also great trees. And this is one that I really like to remember in this space because there are old trees here and the sense of the old trees and the depth that they have and, you know, in a way it seems like they're bearing the wisdom of the ages and there's just something very, very wonderful uh, about them that I feel uh, it would be really good for us not to lose in our world. And I equate in a way where people are planting the new trees or preserving the trees like our Aranyabodhi Awakening Forest Hermitage is the um, a place where the redwood forest is regrowing for this sankha also. I wish for those who are newer and those who are growing up starting to be able to offer shade and shelter to those who come, that they may grow to be great trees, yeah? and uh, that we may, we may have more 
of these great trees to offer, offer back to humanity as a gift to humanity, the Buddha's heirs. Sati, Sati, Sati.